I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. the third time we have attempted to record this episode <laughs> third time's the charm hopefully yep. we haven't made one. it very far in any of the previous two no but we did get flu shots yesterday yeah so we were a little lethargic and there was just a lot going on there was yes. like people like yelling in the hallways so mm-hmm. you could really hear a car show going on yeah. outside which happens periodically and there's no schedule mm-hmm. like no rhyme or reason the to most those. chaotic thing i've ever heard they just like show up and sometimes for like 30 minutes sometimes for like four hours yeah we never know no. so that's always fun so it didn't happen but we're here we're only a day late yeah <laughs> And it's good. not even like, oh, we were lazy and it's a day late. Yeah, like, we tried. We were trying. It, it just, just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. But um, we're here. So welcome. <laughs> welcome. This is the podcast Rejects, if you didn't know. Uh, I'm Spencer and I am here with my amazing roommate and best friend, Alaska. Um, and yeah, we're doing the first episode of our Halloween crime series. Yeah. So finally leaving the Britney series. It feels like such a momentous occasion to start our second series ever. Yeah, it's like our firstborn child has, like, grown up and is off to college. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now we're, like, adopting one. (laughs) Yeah. Because we, like, we're adopting a dog. Because we, like, miss the, you know, we're, like, two empty nests. Um, so this is just going to be a two-parter, um obviously until Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of started, there's one specific Halloween crime that I really wanted to, to cover, um, which we will finish with next week, be our finale. Um, yeah. And sort of that evolved into just talking about crimes that happen on Halloween in general. Because there are so many <laughs> there of them. There are. I feel like, you know, it's Halloween. Yeah. Someone's going to get murdered. Someone's going to get murdered or at least hurt in some, you know, way, shape or form. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot. So a general trigger warning just for like, murder mm-hmm. um we're not gonna get too in the weeds of like what people did no or like, how they committed murder there i think there's one story that i'm going to cover where it's kind of important but other than that um no nothing too details yeah that are you know unnecessary yes yeah um but if murder's not your thing we'll see you in a couple weeks yeah see, we'll you, see in you in november <laughs> you've got some armchair bimbos in the meantime for sure it'll be fine you'll be back with us in no time. So quickly. Um, but for those of you who are uh, into the macabre. <laughs> <laughs> this will be for you. Yep. This will be for you. Um, so I guess I'll start. We have six crimes to cover today. We're going to yes. go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our first one is the murder of Taylor Van Dyst. Mm-hmm. So this happened in Armstrong, British Columbia. So, in Canada. Wow, international. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> um, it's amazing that they solved it, because you know how Canadian cops are. Oh, yeah, they have no experience with any capital crime whatsoever. No, they seem to be very bad at solving crime, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get a hate mail from, like, Canadian cops. <laughs> They're like, we're trying our best. Um, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> just going to try and do a Canadian accent, and I abandon it. I was yeah. like, you know what? Actually, I, that's going to be embarrassing for me. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, well, you have to remember, they're, like, basically French white, so we don't have to respect their accents. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I was like, at least with, like, making fun of British people, I feel like I can do a successful British accent, but a Canadian one, I've never even tried. Yeah. That would be risky behavior. <laughs> it would be a lot, like, in the episode to, you know, debut the first ever chance yes. I ever tried. I am not a um, character actor. I cannot just throw out yeah. these kinds of things. <laughs> Um, so this happened in 2011, so it was fairly recent, uh, and this was the murder of Taylor Van Dyce. As I said, she was an 18-year-old, which I was also 18 in oh, 2011, wow. so we're f- same age. I was 13. Wow. <laughs> Little that baby. age difference. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Um, so Taylor Van Dyce, she left her house dressed as a zombie to go meet up with friends to go trick-or-treating one last time before they were too old, um, which is very cute. Very cute. And also, like, you're never too old to go trick-or-treating. Yeah, absolutely not. Like, go trick-or-treating it's as just a 30 candy. Yeah. yeah. It's so much fun. I'm like, as long as you're there ha- being a good sport, having a good time. Yeah. And you're not, like, yeah, you're not like for kids. Yeah, like, pushing kids out of the way to get to the candy <laughs> or anything. Like, right, like, don't be the weird bullies from... Hocus pocus that yeah. like steal candy from kids. Like yeah. it's like just go to the store, don't you shouldn't you have a job? Like, yeah, like, like seventeen. Okay. Um <laughs> you know, but I do think that's cute. Yeah. Um unfortunately. <laughs> it's not gonna end that well. Mm. Um she left her house around six PM and was walking along a railway track that was sort of outside the town. I think this is kind of a smaller town. Mm. Not super familiar with the area, obviously. Um, never been to Canada. I, don't even, I couldn't even tell you where British Columbia is in relation to anything. This is deeply embarrassing to admit, but I was reading an article and it was like Armstrong BC and I was like, what does BC stand for again? <laughs> Before Christ. I was like, that was an old crime. <laughs> um, so she was walking along the railway track and, uh, it took her through a secluded area. She went to go meet her friend. She texted her friend that she was being creeped which is a direct quote from the text she sent. Um, And then that was the last time her friends ever heard from her. Um, But her friends for 18-year-olds were pretty on the ball. They noticed that something was wrong pretty quickly and, um, you know, started calling people to try and find her, went out and looked for her. They found her three hours later in a different area than where she was, you know, sent this text. Mm. Um, She was lying face down on the ground and was barely alive. She was rushed to the hospital, but died soon after without regaining consciousness. Mm. An autopsy revealed that she had six separate injuries to her head, along with clear evidence of strangulation. Wow. Um, pretty intense stuff. Yeah. Um, they don't know which came first, strangulation or head injuries. Mm. Um, they could not tell, but they did know that she fought off her attacker pretty aggressively. She had scratch marks on her neck from her own nails as she was desperately trying to remove the ligature that was used to strangle her. Um, I couldn't find anywhere what that ligature was, but Mm. not that important. Um, She also scratched her attacker and had his DNA under her fingernails. So um, pretty brave stuff. Um, They used the DNA evidence that they found under her nails to find and arrest uh, a 26-year-old man named Matthew Forrester who came to the area looking for sex. This is like a side note. I don't, I couldn't find anywhere how they found, like, attached his DNA to him. Mm. Because at least in the U.S., like, you wouldn't have your DNA Mm -hmm. unless you were, like, committed, like, a violent crime, I think. Yeah. 
Um, like the DNA database is like pretty limited and mm-hmm. this is 2011. So I just like, I couldn't figure out like how they would have connected that and it didn't yeah. say anywhere. They were just like, yeah, they got the DNA and they knew it was Matthew Forrester's. Interesting. Is like, do you think maybe they like interviewed him at some point or something and asked for samples? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like how they would just have his DNA. Exactly. Um, nevertheless, they knew it was him, and they arrested him in April of 2012, so it took them a while to find him. Mm. Um, I think they found him in, like, a motel, you know, in a different city. Okay. And was charged and found guilty of first-degree murder, which in Canada carries a mandatory life sentence with no chance of parole for a minimum of 25 years. Mm. I don't think they have um, there at all, like, life sentence with no parole. Okay. That's not something they have in Canada, to my knowledge. Got it. He did get a new trial, a couple years later, uh, where they, like, his defense team argued that them sharing the text message that she sent of her being creeped uh, prejudiced the jury against him. Hmm, I feel like the uh, murder, yeah. the, like, strangulation is like, probably... What, violent murder. Yeah, what tipped the jury. Not not a simple text of yeah. being creeped. <laughs> I'm like, that is so dumb. Um, but I think he was still found guilty. I think he's, you know, he's still serving his prison sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, his 60-year-old father was also arrested at the same time for helping his son evade police and was sentenced to three years in prison. So it was real that, like, three months, for the three months after the murder, he left his job and then paid money for his son to get a new driver's license, social insurance number, and bank card. And then lied to the police, telling them that his son was working, he was away working on oil rigs, when in truth he was just hiding him out in Ontario. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, So he also went to prison for a little bit. Yeah. Crazy shit. Yeah. Holy moly. So, quite a, quite a Halloween. Quite a bummer for those friends. Absolutely. That's very traumatizing. I can't even imagine the, like, stress of, like, getting such a ominous text from your friend and then never hearing from them again and, like, just searching for them. Like, mm-hmm. that's terrifying. Yeah. Of, like, what's supposed to be, like, a fun, you know, night. So, uh, let's move on. Um, that was, I think, that was my shortest one, at least. I'm kind of building to the longer ones. Yes, yeah. I think I'm going to do the same. I'm going to start with my, my shortest one and, yeah. and work our way up to the more complex ones. For sure. Um, but this is the story of Carl Jackson. Um, this is from 1998, literally the year I was born. Wow. So We're going back in time, babes. An older crime. Um, Carl was 21 years old at the time, and he was kind of known, like, in his family as, like, not really caring about Halloween. Like, wasn't his thing. He didn't go to parties. He wasn't, like, a costume guy. Just, like, Halloween was just another day in October to him. Crazy. Yeah, so weird. Can't Can't relate. relate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, so he was with his girlfriend in her car on their way to pick up her son from a birthday party when uh, a group of teenagers, uh, hit the car with, like, a bunch of eggs he got out of the car and argued with them. Um, it, I couldn't find any articles that had an interview with the girlfriend or anybody about, like, what exactly, you know, they argued about or anything, but obviously right. eggs. I'm sure it was egg-related. I'm sure. <laughs> I can't imagine there being too much else Those discussed. classic egg arguments that yeah. we all get into. Yeah. 
Um, and so he starts to go back to the car to, like, sit down. He's about to close the door when Curtis Sterling, who was 17 at the time, pulled out a gun, walked up to him, and shot him in the head once, instantly killing him. What a, what a build. Yeah. (laughs) From egging to literally killing someone point blank. Yeah, it's crazy, like, especially because, like, it wasn't like the argument was getting more and more escalated, it wasn't like... You know, it didn't seem like they were about to get into some sort of, like, physical brawl or anything. Like, he was walking away. He was, like, going back to his car. They could have just parted ways. So it's really insane that he was like, you know what? No. And, like, walked up to him and did that. That is insane. Um, yeah, thankfully, the they had not picked up the sun yet. So he did not see this. Well, that's good. Yeah, because I think I don't remember which article, but I think he was, like, eight years old or something. Oof. Like, tiny baby. Um, but what really caught my attention with this story, um, was the article that I found this from is from 2010. And so it was like a article focused on Halloween eggings in New York City that included this story. Like they started the, the article with this story to like highlight how eggings are a a huge problem apparently in (laughs) NYC. And... The article is written so strangely. I don't, I, I'm just going to have to read a couple sentences to mm. like get this across. But they say Halloween eggings have left a violent legacy in New York City. Since 1984, at least 24 people have been seriously wounded or killed in stabbings, shootings, beatings, or accidents sparked by egg throwing confrontations around <laughs> Halloween. It's not funny that people get murdered, but it is funny that it starts with eggs. Yes, it's like a little crazy. Now, the next sentence is what really gets me. The New York Police Department said it did not compile statistics on eggings. And it feels weirdly accusatory. I mean, I'm not one to, like, defend police departments by any means. But, like, I don't... Speaking of police departments... (laughs) All we get is sound interruptions in this fucking show. (sighs) Always. Anyways. Um... Yeah, it feels weirdly accusatory, like it's the police department's fault that they're not keeping diligent records on (laughs) eggings, but I'm like, I feel like they're going to keep in, you know, the procedure of filing things under the actual crime. Right. Like the stabbings or shootings, you know, (laughs) under crime names instead of these Halloween eggings, we gotta have our secret file. (laughs) It just seems really weird. Again, imagine being like, oh, this guy was murdered. And then just being like, there was a crazy egging crime last night. Yeah. It's like he was, he was murdered with a gun. Yeah. I was like, I think we want to focus on the the big picture here (laughs) is that, um, there was murder happening. Right. (laughs) Um, yeah. So very, very weird article. Um, but the one thing that really like gave me a little bit of a chill, like, um, was Carl Jackson's mother obviously is completely distraught. This happens, you know, the whole family is upset. Um, and it was, it was really hard, you know, for all of them throughout the trial and, you know, conviction of Curtis Sterling. But, um, her like interview ends with every October, uh, Mr. Sterling receives a Halloween card in the mail. The card reads, I'm glad you're still there. They are from Miss, uh, Mr. Jackson's mother. <laughs> so, whoa, like, that is, uh, yeah, that just really gave me some chills there. It was whoa. like, ooh. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad for her. That's got to be, you know, terrible to, like, lose your son over 
Some eggs. Yeah, like a very dumb confrontation. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, actually, um, eggs are not allowed to be sold in certain parts of New York City for a week leading up to Halloween because of these 24 incidents. That is just so bizarre. It's really weird. Um, New anyways. York is a weird place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a similar thing with LA, right? Because they, didn't they ban, like, Silly String or something? Oh, yeah. But that's just generally. I oh, don't they think generally? You can you, you use Silly String, like, at parties and stuff. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I thought it was, like, a Halloween-specific one or something. Oh, yeah. I think it, like, comes... I think it started as a Halloween thing, but I, I right. imagine it's all year. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. there is a thing. They don't sell, like, black cats around Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because people will, like, do bad things to them. Yeah, we'll do, like, sacrifices. Absolutely. Just crazy. Insanity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much that story. Yeah. Um, do you want to hit the next one? Yeah. So this next one is kind of salacious oh. because it is in 1957 and involves lesbians, which was Ooh. crazy at the time. Yeah. So this was in Los Angeles, and this is the murder of Peter Fabiano. Mm. So Halloween night. 1957, uh, L.A. hairstylist Peter Fabiano answered the door expecting a trick-or-treater, um, even though it was nearly 11 p.m., and was instead shot in the chest. Oh, my God. Um, he opened the door and said, isn't it a little late for this? And then his wife heard someone say no, and then he was shot. So his wife, Betty, found him with a bullet lodged just below his heart. He was rushed to the hospital, uh, but never woke up. Mm-hmm. So died, you know, pretty soon after. Betty told the police that she heard two voices that night, one masculine and one like a man impersonating a woman. Um, hmm. Not sure what that means. And <laughs> like, what? Okay. Um, and then, you know, by interviewing her and asking her who they thought might actually want to hurt Peter, there was only one person she could think of, Joan Rabel. A family friend. Okay. Um, which I don't, I don't know. Family friend is the right term. It's not considering she shot him in the chest. Yeah, considering that you were like that was the first and only person you can think of that would want to harm you. No, you know, just a husband. family friend. Just like you know, <laughs> she's over all the time. Oh, Joan, <laughs> just Joan being Joan. <laughs> so crazy. All right, so Joan met Peter and Betty uh, when she arrived at Peter's salon looking for work. Um, I think it was a year or two before this. Um, Her and Betty became close friends. And when Peter and Betty started having marital problems, Betty moved in with Joan. Oh. Um, Peter was threatened by the closeness of the two women, which is the exact phrase they use. But then Betty eventually, whenever she like reconciled with Peter, uh, confessed that she was having an affair with Joan. So I don't think he was uncomfortable by the closeness. He probably was... I mean, he probably was homophobic. It's 1957, but still. Yeah. Um, After Betty returned her husband, Joan met Goldine Pizer, Mm -hmm. which I'm assuming is how you say her last name. Um, The two became close friends. Um, (laughs) Goldine was also gay and had spent most of her life suppressing feelings for women and Mm -hmm. had actually married a man, um, you know, which is common, but was recently divorced whenever she met Joan. Mm. Joan was heartbroken that Betty left her for Peter and wanted revenge. So eventually she seduced Goldine and then convinced her to kill Peter for her. Jeez. Um, intense. <laughs> so Goldine bought a 38 Smith and Wesson from a shop in Pasadena under the guise of wanting a, the weapon for personal protection. Uh, she then waited outside of Fabiano's house on Halloween night in the car with Joan. 
that Joan borrowed from a friend. Joan was also in the car with her. Mm. They waited until all the lights went out, and then Joan said, all right, go do it. And Goldine approached the house in a superhero mask. Yikes. Um, (laughs) Peter obviously answered the door, and... Whenever he asked, it's a little late for this, isn't isn't it? And she said, no. She raised a brown paper bag that she was using to hold the gun and just shot him through the bag. Okay. Um, and then obviously ran, get all back to the car, and they took off. Uh, the next day, Goldine rented a locker at a department store in downtown L.A. and left the gun there, which I don't know why you would do that. Why would you do that? <laughs> in a department store. Yeah. Um... So after the murder, an anonymous tip led detectives to find the gun, which was registered to Goldine, and she was arrested. Right. And, like, seems pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Um, she immediately confessed and then claimed that she was coerced into shooting Peter by Joan. Mm. So Joan was also arrested. Um, <laughs> she said, she told me that Mr. Fabiano was a vile, evil man, a man who destroyed everything around him. She told me that he mistreated his wife and that he was dealing narcotics. Still not a good reason to kill a man. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, cool motive, still murder. Right, it's like... Okay. Yeah. Um, this case is, like, really weird because both of the women were put through several examinations by psychiatrists because the court believed that homosexuality made them unfit to stand trial. Oh, <laughs> too gay to do crime. <laughs> no longer is it be gay, do crime. Be gay, cannot commit crime. People <laughs> oh in the 50s so are funny. dumb as fuck. Yeah. Um, and I was like, an intense lesbian date is like the lesbians who like first date goes on for like four days. Not a let's go murder my ex-girlfriend's <laughs> husband. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that's something else. Yeah. That's something else altogether. Yeah. Um, Golding told them that she had no motive personally. She said, whatever motive I have was to please Joan. I was always easily influenced. I had been impressionable and always trusting. Okay. You really killed a man. To be like, I'm just poor woman. Oh, my- can't do anything. I'm poor, sad, manipulated woman. <laughs> Shot a man point blank. <laughs> Um, so they were both charged with murder, but they both pled innocent Goldine by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because of the lesbianism, I'm not sure. <laughs> the, but they were both convicted, but not a first degree murder. They ended up reducing the charges to second degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like it was through a plea deal, but I couldn't find any, you know, real confirmation of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the judge sentenced them both to five years in prison, which is barely anything. Wow. <laughs> um, it sounds like they both got out and then basically just lived out their lives and died. Nothing else interesting happened, which is very bizarre to just, like, murder a man and then just be like, that was crazy. Oh, my God. Hitty weird. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> I also found an article that was written, I think it was in the 80s, but they talked about this case and it was about how women are treated light, like with lighter sentences in the courtroom because mm-hmm. they don't believe that they can like commit real crimes. And this was one of the cases that they used as like evidence. Right. Which honestly makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so some lesbian murderers killing an LA hairstylist. Yeah. 
boat lesbians. I don't know if you can hear the motorcycles in the background. <laughs> They're coming for us. The ghosts of these lesbians. It's like at some point, you're just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you know, I think that might be our oldest one for today. Yeah, 1957. I think so. That's pretty old. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, if I remember mine correctly. I think they all happen in the 90s or early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Which was a time for murder. People be murdering like crazy. Yeah. The 90s, they were like, ugh, we're bored. What should we do? Murder people. I'm like, murder was such a fad. Yeah, it was. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this is the story of Yoshihiro Hattori, a Japanese exchange student mm. um, who was staying with a host family in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, okay. In 1992. Um, and the host family that he was staying with also had a 16-year-old son, Webb Haymaker. Um, <laughs> yeah, what a name. Yeah. Uh, and the boys hit it off. Like, they were instant friends. They did everything together. Cute. Yeah, really adorable. And everyone, like, really loved Yoshihiro. Like... Um, they thought he was so interesting and charming and fun and like, you know, um, he just got along with all like the, their school friends. On October 17th, uh, which that year was a Saturday, the boys were on their way to one of their friends' Halloween parties and they left together in Webb's car. They arrived at the house that they believed was the location of the party and Mm -hmm. rang the doorbell, but there was no response. Uh, Webb later in his interview said, Eventually, we ended up on this street. We saw this house. It had Halloween decorations. It had three cars in the driveway, and the address was 10311, whereas we wanted to go to 10131. Uh, Mm. But I just saw the address and was like, oh, this is it. Um, So after not hearing the response, they went around to the side door to see if um, anybody was in the backyard or, you know, back there Mm -hmm. and knocked. um, And a woman opened the door like two inches and then immediately slammed it shut. The boys were confused and they were like, okay, maybe we have the wrong house. And they walked back around to go walk around the block and see if it's just another house in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, As they get around back to the front, the front door opens and the owner, Rodney Pierce, holds up a gun. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Just like opens the door, gun out, like pointed at them. Um... Webb said that Yoshihiro was very eager to get to the party and didn't understand, I guess, that Piers had a gun. Maybe he thought it was a Halloween thing. He was light on his feet and just saying in a very boisterous way, we're here for the party, we're here for the party. Um, oh. Yeah. Piers yelled at him to freeze, but Yoshihiro kept walking. Um, and so he shot him in the chest and then slammed the door shut. Jesus Christ. Yes. What kind of reaction is that? I don't to, know. Like teenagers. To teenage boys who one of which is clearly saying they're here for a party. Yeah. Um and later Piers claims that he thought the boys were burglars, which is like Did you, you think though? burglars come in your front door saying we're here for a party? Yeah, dressed as like, you know, Halloween like characters, like we're here for a party. Clearly like young boys. Um I'm like, what are you, just fucking racist? Yeah, that's what it seems like, because he's an Asian person. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, so after Yoshihiro gets shot, Webb immediately calls the police, and he was waiting at the station for his parents to arrive. Yoshihiro died in the hospital, and Webb was at the station, so he had no idea. The first thing he asks 
his parents, when they arrive, is how is he? They know that he's dead and, like, you know, tells him so. And his first thing he said was his poor mother. He, like, just cared about the mom. Um, It's so sad. It's so sad. Originally, Piers was interviewed but not charged on the self-defense, you know, thing of, like, his property, whatever. Okay. Uh, But received pressure from the Louisiana governor and the Japan's embassy in New Orleans at the time. Oh, good. Um, And he got charged with manslaughter. But his self-defense defense worked in court. And his lawyers argued that he was no killer because he was simply one of your neighbors who was reacting to Yoshihiro's extremely unusual way of moving. That is direct quote from their argument. Does he mean walking? Yeah, he means walking. Walking while Asian? Walking while Asian is a crime. Oh, yep. that makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah, it's it's horrific. So he got no, no punishment at all for that. I can't imagine, like, that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. I was like, for pulling a gun immediately. Immediately. Instead of being like, hey, leave, I'm going to call the cops. Yeah. Which still would be an overreaction. But, mm-hmm. like, if they're just out and you're like, no, this, you have the wrong house. And yeah. then if they keep coming, I'm like, okay. Yeah. But, like, pulling a gun immediately. He opens the door, gun out already. And then just kills a man. Mm-hmm. A child. A child. A 16-year-old. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Fucking disgusting. Um, his, Yoshihiro's parents were obviously, you know, devastated by this and were... Also, like, um, vocal about how shocked they were because of uh, Japan's, like, very strict gun control laws Mm. that they, like, didn't even think of this as, like, a thing um, because they just weren't familiar with American gun laws. Um, And they went on to start a huge campaign with Japanese citizens and American citizens, like, a huge uh, collaboration advocating for stronger gun control laws in America. And they did that um, for years. I don't know if they're still doing it. Um, but it seems like that became, like, a very, very huge movement. Um, wow. I yeah. wish it had worked. I wish. <laughs> yeah. So that's the very uh, horrific and sad story of Yoshihiro. Yeah, that one is, like, the saddest one yet. Mm-hmm. Like, that one just is genuinely really sad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me very angry. Mm-hmm. And I think it was hard. I was, like, feeling kind of defensive anyways because of, like, how racist the story is. I was, like, you know, in a bad mood while reading this. But... I just wanted to share that the articles that I was looking at all used, like, the same picture. And I finally found an article where it's actually, like, labeled the picture. And it was, like, a friend took this photo of Yoshihiro in San Francisco. But other articles just used the picture, right? Mm-hmm. And being from San Francisco, I can recognize a lot of these things. And originally I looked at it and I was like, oh, that kind of looks like San Francisco's Chinatown when I saw the picture. And then I was like, you know, maybe it's a different Chinatown in a different part of, you know, whatever, like... I don't know. I just thought it was like wild that there was a picture of him in San Francisco when he was just here in Louisiana. Like that's right. where his host family it's pretty was. Far. Yeah, I was like, I mean, obviously he could have just been there on vacation, which obviously he was, but it just seemed like a a little yeah. strange. And then I noticed in the background a very famous like bakery, the Golden Gate Bakery in the background. And I was like, okay, no, this definitely is San Francisco. And I was really worried for a minute there that all of these articles had just found a picture of a different Asian kid and was using that instead. And I, I was just very angry as I was looking through it. Right. Um, we've had a lot of articles we've talked about in the past where people have used the wrong photos. Right, most notably the 90-year-old Nazi. Yeah, where they used a picture of a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. God. Um, so, 
yeah, I was um, was very frantically looking through these articles. Right, to, like, confirm it. that it's actually him and yes. not just, like, a random photo. Yes, yeah, and it was him, yeah. So we'll be posting that picture yeah. um, as well as other pictures from other stories wherever we have them. Um, but, yeah, that's that one. Oh, what a bummer. Sorry to give you quite the bummer to have to talk <laughs> after. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, this one's a bummer, too, but it's at least... I don't know. Something about people just murdering people they know is, like, less sad than, mm-hmm. like, just a man shooting a boy on his doorstep for yeah. no reason. Yeah. Um, so this one is takes place in Martin, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was Halloween 2010. Okay. So this is the Liskey family murders. Mm-hmm. So on Halloween, uh, Halloween morning... Devin Griffin, a 16-year-old, returned home after singing in his um, Sunday morning church service. Okay. So he returned home, I think it was about 1.30 in the afternoon. He initially went up to his room to play video games, but then noticed that the house was unusually quiet. Hmm. So he went looking around the house for his parents. So he lived there with his mom um, and his stepfather. Okay. Um, and then there his stepfather's son. So I guess his stepbrother. Got it. Um, Cause his parents were divorced and the night before he was staying with his father, his like birth father. Gotcha. Um, but his mom was, uh, he's then the articles are like, his mom was like, you know, usually up and around by this time. But I was like, it's one thirty in the afternoon. Yeah. Everybody's mom is up and around. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't need to be said. We yeah. understand. Um, so he went around, you know, looking for them in the house. And then in the master bedroom, unfortunately found his mother, Susan, who was 46 at the time, and his stepfather, William, lying in bed with a comforter pulled up over their heads. Um, He was talking to them to wake them up and then walked to his mother's side of the bed and noticed that her foot was sticking out from under the covers. Mm -hmm. Um, He tapped on her foot to get her attention, but she made no response. And so he pulled down the covers to reveal a bloody mess on her pillow. Um, He initially thought that it was a Halloween joke or something like that, which makes sense. It's Halloween day. Mm -hmm. You find your parents covered in blood. I can imagine. You're really hoping it's a prank. Yeah. Yeah. But soon he realized that it wasn't and they were in fact deceased. Uh, So he ran from the house in tears and then called his aunt to try and figure out what to do. Um, His aunt lives in the area. And so she called 911, which makes sense. You know, he's 16. He's a kid. Um, the police arrived at the house shortly after they found William and Susan were shot in their beds. Um, William was shot five times in the head and face. Jesus. And Susan was shot three times at close range. Um, she was also moved. They think she was like moved around after she was dead. Mm. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to why, but, uh, as we'll get into later, there was no trial, so we don't actually know. So I'm not really going to speculate. Um, Devin's uh, uh, 23-year-old brother, Derek, um, who lived at the house as well, uh, his room was upstairs, and the police found that it was locked when they arrived. Um, So they kicked down the door. Actually, I think I was incorrect. I said he lived with his stepbrother. This is um, his actual brother. Oh, okay. Uh, So Susan's child. Okay. uh, Derek. So they kicked down the door and found him curled up in his bed, like, facing the wall. Um, his death was the result of blunt force trauma, blunt force trauma, and most likely he died within minutes of the first blow, which is, you know, lucky. Yeah. Um, they found a bloody claw hammer, uh, in the house, which was matched to him. So they knew that this was the murder weapon. Mm. Um, 
very unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, the tech, the detectives also found a muddy footprint near the family's pond. Um, so they thought that was where the killer disposed of the weapon, like the gun he used to kill his, the parents. Um, but they drained the pond and found nothing. Mm. Um, it seems like it was pretty soon after this that they identified William B.J. Liskey Jr., William's son, um, as a suspect. Mm-hmm. So Devin had seen, so obviously he had been at his biological father's house the night before, and then he returned to his mother's house at 930 that morning to change into church clothes. Uh-huh. Um, so just changed his clothes and then left. But while he was there, he said that his stepbrother BJ was at the house. Um, so investigator said, Devin said he couldn't think of anything else that was said, but stated that BJ was acting happier. To explain, Devin said that normally BJ is gloomy. I asked Devin what made him think that BJ was acting happier. Devin said that it was because he was happier, more upbeat, and more talkative. Um, Devin stated that BJ was normally slow and darkish. Okay. So I guess just, you know, moody teenager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, he was, like, asking him what he was up to and stuff. So, clearly, something was up. Something was different. Mm-hmm. And then left for church. Uh, a neighbor also told the investigation that she heard the sound of gunshots at 6.30 a.m. that morning. Meaning that um, Devin's parents, or mom and stepdad, were likely already deceased when he came to change into his church clothes. Wow. Yeah. Um, so... I'm going to go into BJ for a second here. Some mm-hmm. background information. He was apparently a very troubled kid. Okay. Um, neighbors were always weary of BJ and often suspected him of killing and torturing neighborhood pets. Um, the Gradles, a like family friends who I think live in the area, their dog was shot twice with 22 caliber bullets and they suspected that it was BJ who did it. In 2002, um, William called the cops on BJ, who was 16 at the time, because he was threatening to harm himself. Um, in 20, uh, 2004, BJ got in a fight with his stepmother, Susan, and struck her hard in the chest. He apparently never liked Susan because she and William got married in 2001, and Susan attempted to, like, impose order in the house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, BJ resented that and resented the new rules. Um so after this fight, he was charged with felony assault and then eventually a robbery two months later for stealing Susan's car keys after hitting her with a coffee mug. Oh. Um, these charges were eventually dropped, though, because he was found too incompetent to stand trial. Hmm. It's like, okay. Yeah. Um, he had three more encounters with police before these murders occurred because um, he was moved into a group home for mental health patients, um, basically under the you know, guidance of his father. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these encounters with the police happened after a physical fight between him and his father. And BJ was kicked out of the house by his father after he, after his father found out that BJ tried to attack Susan while she was in the shower. So that's wow. really intense. Um, yeah. In 2007, William filed for guardianship of BJ with, um, after he was hospitalized for like a schizoid affective disorder, bipolar type. Oh. So we know lots about guardianships. Yes. Um, so he filed for this. He said that he just wanted to, you know, help protect BJ and get him the help that he needs. 
And he said in the application, he would eventually like to see him in a halfway house or a group home. When William or when BJ is on his medication, he does really good. After a while, he will stop taking it because he thinks he's okay. And he starts mm-hmm. drinking and smoking pot. Um, but it's probably the meds and drinking that really, you know. Yeah, not a good combo. For sure. So a week before the murders, uh, William took BJ hunting on like a father-son trip. Mm-hmm. William is putting in a lot of work for a kid that is clearly not okay. Yeah. Um, they returned home on October 30th, so right before the murders. Um, and when they returned home, they went to have beers with friends. Uh, but Derek wasn't with them because him and BJ didn't get along. So it's speculated that... Um, so Der- basically, Derek, was, the last time he talked to anyone was 2.02 p.m. on October 30th. Mm. So it's really unclear when he died, but there is pretty heavy speculation that he died before they went to go get drinks. Uh-huh. Um, but we know for a fact that he died before his the parents. Okay. So Derek was the first to die. Um, after Devin left the house, BJ took the family's Ford F-150, so in the morning, um, and drove to a hunting cabin where him and William had just returned from. Okay. Um, he also stopped to get a Subway sandwich on the way. Wow. Because, you know, murder makes you hungry. I guess. Um, for, you know, just a very weird Subway ad. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, did Subway pay for this? <laughs> like, they've always had weird ads, but... Yeah. I'm like, first the child molester, now this. Come on, guys. <laughs> get it together. Um, he was there less than an hour, though, before the Carroll County Sheriff's deputy showed up and arrested him. He did not get to eat a Subway sandwich. It was left uneaten Good. on the counter. Justice. <laughs> um, he was charged with three crown- three counts of aggravated murder and would have faced the death penalty but pled guilty for life in prison without parole. Um, during the trial, he spoke emotionlessly, saying, I loved my dad very much, and it makes me feel sick every time I think about what I did. I can't really explain why this all happened, this all had to happen, but I think most of all had to do with my mental illnesses. Okay. I have a lot of mental illnesses, and I have never murdered anyone. No. (laughs) I've never even had a real impulse. Sure, I like to talk about murder theoretically, especially with billionaires. But never really, like, thought, hmm. Right. How do I kill this person? No. Never even, like, when I'm at my angriest. Nope. Yep. I'm like... It's not an impulse (laughs) people have. (laughs) I don't think it's your mental illnesses. I think you're just a fucking asshole. Yep. Um, And then, this is kind of a bummer, but also kind of not. In 2015, BJ committed suicide in prison at the age of 29. Okay. So, this is basically all we know about it, because obviously there wasn't a real trial. So, and because they arrested him so quickly, um, you know, there wasn't much to investigate afterwards, because it was pretty clear that he committed it and, you know, confessed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, obviously, a couple years later, committed suicide in prison. So pretty crazy stuff um i can't even imagine being that 16 year old and finding your mom dead after coming home from church yeah on halloween morning afternoon um fucking crazy insanity yeah Oof. also if your child is murdering animals um and physically assaulting you and family members mm-hmm. on the reg uh, like, I understand you want to be a good dad and you're trying to, like, build a relationship, but sometimes you just got to cut your losses. Yeah. Like, seems like that's just who they are. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yes. So. Anyways. Yeah. 
Should we move on to our last and final crime for this episode? Let's do it. All right. So our final story for this episode is the murders of Leslie Mazzara and Adrian Insania. Um, I do want to say up top, if you want like a full, like in-depth, like into every single detail, um, you know, coverage of this story, Mm -hmm. the Moms and Murder podcast has a really good episode Um, they don't have numbers on their episodes, but it's not too long, um, ago that they covered this. So it's very easy to find. Um, they have like an hour and 15 minutes on just these two and it's really good coverage. Um, so we're doing obviously an abbreviated one for this series. Um, but yeah, so check that out if you want. Um, so this happened in Napa Valley, uh, California in 2004 So Leslie and Adrian were both uh, two recent college grads, and um, they also had a friend, Lauren Mienza, um, that they all moved into a house in the suburbs of Napa there, which is a little weird for, you know, 26, 27-year-olds. Napa Valley is uh, very much wine country. Mm -hmm. It's usually, like, retirees live there. Not a huge nightlife or anything. Um, Just kind of boring, unless you like the winery scene. Um, And maybe they did, but... Um, it's just a a weird choice. Not a lot of young people move there. Right. Um, but they did happen to live right next door to another house of, I think, three, um, recent graduate women. Um, and so their house plus the neighbor's house was very much like the hangout scene for all the 20-somethings there. Love that. All the 20-somethings in the area that was like, these were the popular girls' houses and they all, (laughs) they all hung out. Um, and... In meeting um, these people, like, in their community, Adrian specifically became very close uh, with a girl named Lily Prudhomme and her boyfriend, Eric Koppel. Okay. Um, Adrian actually met Lily at work. They were both civil engineers at a company in the area. So they had parties and such all the time. It was a very, like, bump-in household. There was always (laughs) things going on at their place. But on the night of Halloween, the three women actually decided to just stay home and hand out candy. They weren't, you know, gonna do some crazy rager or anything. Leslie and Adrian spent the day baking cupcakes for themselves and for, like, parents that would stop by, um, had, like, huge buckets of candy, uh, ready for the kids. Um, they were so excited. Lauren, um, was also staying home. She wasn't Um, as into handing out the candy, she was a little bit concerned for her dog, Chloe, who was kind of nervous and didn't really like the doorbell ringing. Mm. But, you know, she was like, as long as I'm here with Chloe, like, everything will be fine. Like, we'll just hang out, you know, in the room. But the three women were staying home, is the thing. Um, so they gave out candy and just hung out, talking, chatting until about 11 p.m. The, you know, kids are going home, going to sleep. Everything's pretty much dying down. And, um... Couldn't see exactly in what um, any of the articles what exactly they had to do the next day, or maybe it was just errands or something. But all three of the women pretty much in their rooms by eleven thirty, an early night. night. Yeah, Lauren had the downstairs bedroom, and Leslie and Adrian had bedrooms upstairs. Okay, uh, Lauren was the last one to like really fall asleep. She said she didn't hear any noises from their rooms like pretty much right after 11:30 and Lauren fell asleep pretty soon after. Mm. Then around 1 a.m. Chloe starts growling and barking at Lauren's bedroom door and forgot 
Chloe was a dog for a second. Oh, right. I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, Choice. A choice. A choice. It's like the wolf girl on TikTok. No. Um, And Lauren is like half awake, barely, you know, registering what's happening, but does notice that the backyard light is on, but just assumes it's like a neighborhood cat running through or something Mm -hmm. um, and calms down Chloe and they go back to sleep. Um, It doesn't say how long later. All of them just say a little while later. Um, A she hears a loud noise from the front door. Chloe is now like up and like barking and she's trying to calm her down so that she can like listen to the sounds and see what it is. Yeah. At first she's just kind of annoyed because she, it's very common in their house with like, you know, being with two like very popular girls that some guy would come over for like a late visit or something and they were just being loud. Um, so she was just thinking another guy's here, whatever. Mm -hmm. They'll go upstairs soon. Not a big deal. Um, just wants to go back to sleep. Um, and she hears a lot of bumping sounds from upstairs. She's like, God damn it. I just want to go to sleep. Yeah. Be quiet. Um, but she really starts intently listening when she realizes that the sounds shift from Leslie's room into Adrian's room. She's like, that's weird. Why are they moving around? And, um, then suddenly she hears like a blood curdling scream. And the sound of glass breaking, and she doesn't even know what to do. She just freezes in shock. Like, she can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just listening to these sounds. Um, she's holding on to her dog. And um, finally, she snaps out of the freeze state and takes her dog and runs out the back door. But then forgets that they have, like, a weird setup in their backyard. And she's kind of trapped there. They don't have a door for some reason. I don't know. It's really strange. So she just tries to hide in a corner and just like waits, like hoping that they don't notice that she's there. Jesus. Um, she can hear the killer leave through a window um, and uh, runs back inside immediately to go check on her roommates. Um, when she gets upstairs, uh, she hears Adrian still alive crying for help and goes immediately to her, slips on the blood in the room. There's so much blood goes over to her and tries to just, like, find her wounds, you know, put pressure on things, um, and looks over and notices Leslie face down in a pile of laundry, unmoving. Jeez. Um, she runs to the landline to call 911 and realizes the phone line's been cut. And, oh, God. Yeah, so she grabs her cell phone and decides to run out to her car to call the police, because she still has no idea if the killer's even around, if they're, like, looking through the house around the backyard for her. She was like, I'm going to get in the car where at least, you know, hopefully they can't break in right away as yeah. I call the police. And so she's in her car. Um, and the police arrive within just a few minutes and um, they are able to get Adrian into a ambulance, but unfortunately she dies on the way to the hospital. Mm. Um, Leslie was pronounced dead as soon as they arrived. Yeah. Um, and the police think that she was the target um, because of the way the girls were in their rooms. It was clear that Adrian was trying to come to Leslie's reg- rescue from like the stabbing and Ugh. was stabbed for it. Um, so... The police, there's, uh, you know, very few evidence or clues, and this is pretty much all they have. The killer came through the kitchen window. There was no theft. Yeah. Um, no evidence of sexual assault. There were very heavy-duty zip ties, like the kind that police will use in place of handcuffs sometimes zip ties, just outside the front door, mm. and cigarette butts also outside the front door. Okay. Um... And this was the first murder in Napa in four years, so it is huge in the area. Like, everybody's freaked out. Um, 
there's a lot of initial theories running around. Is it Halloween related? Is there a serial killer in the area? You know, California's crazy about those. Um, But it is clear that it's premeditated. The killer either cased the house or had been inside before. Like, they knew where they were going. Like, they were here to kill. Yeah. Um, And so they were looking at the people the women knew for suspects. The police got over 200 samples from friends, family, co-workers, even local sex offenders and other people in the area. And nobody was a match for the DNA on the cigarette butts. Wow. I know. Crazy. Um... They go through in the Moms and Murders podcast a bunch of other, you know, suspects and other things, but um, two major ones that we're going to talk about. Uh, Leslie's ex-boyfriend's father is a suspect. He's very weird. He has called her numerous times at all hours of the day, like since she moved away from, I think, South Carolina, where she's from. And um, several of those calls being on Halloween night. Uh, He really like, was involved in her relationship with his son in, like, a really inappropriate level of, like, really trying to make sure that they stayed together and was Mm. actually a huge reason of why Leslie broke up with his son. Yeah. Because she was like, your dad is so weird. Um, And he was claiming that he called her on the night of Halloween because she had actually called him earlier asking about her birth certificate and she thought that she left it at their house and he just really needed to tell her that they didn't have it. Uh, (laughs) So what an excuse. But obviously they're not really going to look into him because he's clearly in South Carolina making these calls. He's not there for the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. Still very weird. Yeah. Um, It's really fucked. Yeah. So strange. Um, And they interviewed all of her ex-boyfriends, and she, like, was friends with most of her exes. The only one she really didn't talk to was obviously the son of that weird guy. Yeah. But all her friends, like, exes in the area, they were, like, you know, totally fine. They didn't have really that many bad breakups. They had no ill will towards her, like, no motive to be seen by any of these other people. Um, And so the police are kind of just, like, we don't know what to do. Right. Um, Lily is, um, the friend, uh, that I mentioned earlier is incredibly distraught. Um, her and Adrian were actually supposed to go on a trip to Australia just days later. Jesus. Um, yeah. So obviously she didn't do that. Um, and it's kind of weird, but we have to circle back to Lily and her boyfriend, Eric, for a second. They were actually supposed to get married and the wedding date was for November 1st, 2004. So the oh. day of these murders. But Lily had actually broken off the wedding um, months before because she thought that Eric wasn't ready yet. Like she just like his heart doesn't seem to be in it. We're not just we're, you know, we're not going to get married yet. They stayed together, but just no marriage. Um right away. Mm -hmm. After the murder, though, Lily felt like life was too short and Eric was being so supportive of her grief and all this stuff that she thought he was ready now and that they needed to get married after all. Like, she was like, we're going to be together anyways. We might as well get married. Um, She invites Leslie and Adrian's mothers to the wedding um, as like a support for them and for her like to like let her know that she was really close and like loved her daughters or whatever and also like missed the fact that she wouldn't be able to have her friends at the wedding okay and actually became really close friends with adrian's mother Hmm. um they would like send letters and texts and all that stuff and you know that's kind of sweet it's really cute yeah lily would spend a lot of time like telling her great stories about her daughter and adrian's mom like felt really like you know loved and supported that like her daughter was so beloved you know by her friends yeah and um the murder was open and had no new public leads for almost a year. Um, and 
But there was forensic work going on in the background at the time, just wasn't like announced publicly. So there was actually blood from the killer found in the house, and they were able to match it to the cigarette butt DNA. So they knew it was the same person. Um, and they were working closely with Lauren on all leads or ideas that they came across to see if it would jog her memory. Um, and she remembered that Lily and her boyfriend were the only smokers of their group. Oh. Um, she was like, nobody else smoked cigarettes. Only those two did. Um, and then police realized once they heard Eric's name that he had somehow slipped through the DNA testing and interview process. They didn't have anything from him. Um, and they tried to contact him to no avail, couldn't find him, left work, like, you know, left notices with his boss at work, you know, friends and family, couldn't find him and decided to have the media publish that the DNA, they found blood and the DNA uh, from the cigarette butts matched and that the police were closing in. Um, and then just a few days later, Eric turns himself in. Wow. Yeah. Um, arrived at the police station with Lily and confesses immediately. Oh my God. Yes. Um, he never revealed why he did what he did, um, which is really interesting. They had obviously multiple, multiple interviews with detectives, um, and in the courtroom never said why he did. And the, um, prosecutor made it as part of his deal Uh, specifically that he could, well, he waived his rights to an appeal and agreed he could never profit financially from the deaths of Insania and Mazzara. Um, And so he was not allowed to tell anyone about why he did what he did unless he was going to tell the police. Like, he made it part of his, like, whatever. I don't know how he did that, but it was really interesting. He was like, okay, you're not going to sit on this for years and then, like, come out with a tell-all and, like, try and make money off of it like you dick. Right. if you're ever going to do that. Which I don't Um, think you're able to make money off of that anyway. Yeah. I think that is already a law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he was just, like, very, I think it was just, like, part of his closing arguments or something in the court. Like, he wanted to, like, really focus on that or something. Mm -hmm. The, uh, prosecutor, which I thought was interesting. crazy, though, that that, I'm like, why? Yeah, it's insane. Um, and so he got a guilty plea. He uh, he pled to two counts of first-degree murder, uh, got life without parole. Uh, death penalty at the time was on the table in, uh, California, but they did not do that. They just went for life without parole. Not that they ever execute anyone. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so that's that for Eric Koppel. What happened to Lily? Uh, Lily is not discussed in any other articles after this, other than one of them kind of talks about the, um like trial itself and the only mention of her is that she sat stone-faced um the entire time like in the trial alongside i think eric's mother or something wow yeah so no no indication of how how she was feeling at all um at least in the the public parts of the trial wow yeah wow so all right (laughs) lots of a really mixed bag of different types of murder yes just all over the place. All over the place. All um, crazy shit. Wow. So I guess that concludes our first episode of Halloween Crimes. Yeah, that's it. We'll have another episode next week um, with, do you remember how many we have? Like six or I so? I think we have six. Six. But it could shift. It could between shift. Between then and now. So we will see. We shall see. You'll just have to find out. <laughs> <laughs> A surprise. Yep. Um, yes. And then, uh, obviously armchair bimbos will be out when they're out. Honestly, yeah. I'm not even going to give days for them at this point. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we're trying for Monday, but it is tough. We it's have tough. a lot going on. We have a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, but yeah, 
You'll hear from us. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. The Podcast Rejects is a Gamer Frauds Network production. Find us on Instagram at The Podcast Rejects. For early access to all Gamer Frauds Network content and a ton of exclusive perks, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash gamerfrauds.